The, the good news of Christianity, though, this is what we're talking about today, is that in the breaking of Christ, every single barrier between you and God has been broken. It's done and it's gone. And it means that when Christ was naked and clothed with shame, you are now clothed with acceptance and love and approval. And he delights in you. And when he gets the absence of God on the cross, you get to go into his presence. And in our story today, we see the Jewish people. Now, we're in Acts, so the Jewish people have been, you know, they've received the Holy Spirit, which is a monumental thing that has happened. But there's this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are seen as those who are unclean. And the Jewish people are amazed at what happens in this story because they see not only do the unclean Jewish people have God come into their presence, but God actually begins to dwell within them. Like this is what it means when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. This is the living God is dwelling in them. And what that means is that in the breaking of Christ, all barriers are broken. And he dwells so close. And we've been doing this thing now where there's a Q&A after the sermon, and we're going to do that again today. So after the sermon, there'll be a phone number, and you just text your question to that phone number if you have any questions. And it's been going well so far, so we're going to keep it going until it becomes clear maybe we should stop doing this. So we're in Acts 10, and I'm going to read quite a few verses, verses 23 through 47. This is God's word to us. Here's what it says. The next day he rose. This is talking about Peter. So Peter's back in the story again. Peter has shown back up in Acts, and he's going to a man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and Peter is a Jewish man. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered... Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew, me a Jew, to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in, the country of, in, in this country and the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, which means the Jewish people, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Our first point is that God breaks barriers. It is common for people to say Christianity is exclusive. And it's common because it's true. Christianity makes this monumental claim that Christ is the absolute only way to the Father. Christ is the door, he's the path, and there are none other than him to make it there to the Father. And now while it is so exclusive, it is the most inclusive of all religions because it says all are welcome. There is nothing, there is not one barrier that keeps you between you and God but pride. C.S. Lewis called pride the reason that Satan fell from the heavens. It was pride that he couldn't get rid of. To be a Christian, you don't have to be moral. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to be married or single. You don't have to belong to some political party. You, all you need is need. All you need is need. Every religion has rules. And what happens is when the rules are coming along, you start following them, and this thing starts happening to you where you become prideful. Like, I'm doing it. I'm one of the good ones. And in Christianity, you don't have that. You have a rescuer. First and foremost, Christianity is about a rescuer. And before this rescuer even says, come and follow my ways, do you know what he does first? He first comes to fight for you. He first dies for you on the cross. He goes down into death and he rises up, raising you up out of the ashes and he carries you out into freedom. And then he says, follow me. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, you may say, well, didn't he ask the disciples to follow him before he died? And the answer would be, yes, he did, but they didn't really follow him because they didn't know fully who he was until after he died and rose. And then they really began to follow him. In our story, the Jews were the chosen race. And now God has chosen every race, and everything has now changed. And you even look at the way that they received the Holy Spirit. It says they received the Holy Spirit, and they began worshiping and speaking in tongues. Now this, Paul later talks about this event, and he, he points back to the original Pentecost, and at the original Pentecost, what happened is uh, 
they started speaking all of the languages of all the surrounding people. Now, you think about this. If every language is being spoken here, or the, the ones that are in the surrounding area, that means that not even language is a barrier between God and his people. He's breaking down every barrier. And as this is happening, this Pentecost is, and you could think about this as like a second Pentecost for the Gentiles. And well, let's go back. What was Pentecost? Pentecost, all the way back in Acts, is this amazing event. Well, let me say it this way. Jesus said, it's good for me to leave you. Because when I do, I'm going to send you a gift. The Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God will dwell within you, like live in you. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to dwell in his people. And the Jewish people who are watching this now happen to the Gentiles are absolutely amazed because they're thinking, how can God dwell in unclean people? And that's why Peter says, you know what? In the past, I thought I would not be able to come into your house. He says this right to Cornelius's face, like without shame. Like I would not have come into your house because I thought you were unclean. But now God has shown me not to call anything or anyone unclean or common. And it's puzzling the Jewish people, but now they're seeing why. Barriers are being broken. Now, every culture has barriers between us and God. Culture sets them up. And there's, a, there's an amazing story about a missionary named Harvey Kahn, and he goes to Korea to minister to prostitutes there in Korea. And as he's ministering to them, he keeps telling them this good news about Jesus, but no one's believing, and he's getting frustrated, and he can't figure out why. And this is a very shame-based culture in Korea. So if you're a prostitute, I mean, it would be far more shame. You'd feel far more shame than if you were one in America. And what he kept finding is, as he kept telling them about the forgiveness in Christ and the love and the acceptance that comes from Christ, they just kept saying, no, it's too far beyond me. They felt so much shame about what they had become. And he couldn't convince them. And then he tried to do something that nobody would do in America. He starts with this doctrine in Christianity, this part of the gospel called election. Americans have a very hard time with this doctrine. And it says that you did not choose God, he chose you. That you didn't love him first, he loved you first. And they all became Christians. And the reason is because in that culture that had a high value of authority, they say, well, there's no one of more authority than God. And if he claims me as his and he chooses me as his, then I'm his. There's nothing I can do about it. Isn't that fascinating? And then, so let's come over to America now. And in America, we have a culture. And in our culture, our barrier is that we demand to be accepted just as we are. There's a historian and professor named Carl Truman, and he writes about this, oh, what's the word? It's like this just strange, not strange time, it's, a, uh, it's something new. Something new has happened for humanity. All throughout history, we have always found our identity outside of ourselves. We've looked outside of ourselves to know who we are. And what he says is there's been a shift in philosophy. There's been a shift in the way of our thinking. And now we are trying to find who we are and by looking within. 
And so we look within and we say, who are you? Like, what are you? What, who am I? And as we look, we start discovering things about us. And we start forming our identity about ourselves by looking in. And then the, this, this thinking comes along about being your authentic self. And so what you find here, if you're going to be authentic, you display it out to the world. And these, these philosophers, one guy's name is Hegel, he says, here's what happens to us when we do that. We take our identity, we display it to the world, longing to be loved and accepted. And whenever someone rejects us, it's like a knife in our heart. Because we're saying, this is who I am. And if you reject me, it will destroy absolutely everything about me. That's why... That's why if you've seen this bumper sticker that says coexist, the, the idea is that there's all of these religions and all of these people have searched within themselves. They have a deep search and they have, they have said, this is what I believe. And so the idea of the bumper sticker is accept all religions because if you don't, it's going to be like putting a knife in their heart. So then Christianity comes along or the Bible comes along and you open up the Bible and, and one of the very... One of the things you find is it says, the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Bible comes along and starts saying, you're a sinner. And it's so offensive to us in our culture today because what it's saying is like who you are. It's like a knife to your heart. But Christianity doesn't just call you a sinner. As we said last week, you're far more sinful than you than you want to believe, but then it says you are far more loved than you would ever dare hope. Because what we find in Christianity is that Christ comes up to us and he says, let's trade. You're an orphan without a father, without the heavenly father. I know him. I'd like to trade places with you. I will become a servant and a slave of the cross and you can become a loved and accepted firstborn son of God. Surprisingly, Christianity gives our world everything that it wants and longs for. We just have to get through the hard parts to see the beautiful things. And when, if you want that identity, what you have to find about Christ is that he pursues sinners. This is our second point, God pursues sinners. If you look at the story of Cornelius, he was not seeking after God. God was orchestrating all of it. God was doing all of the work, and he, and he was getting Peter, and Peter doesn't even know what he's doing. He's just going and showing up, and then it's like, oh, this is what God is doing. And what I mean by this, Cornelius was never seeking or pursuing God. God was pursuing him. And, and maybe for some of you, God is pursuing you, and, and you're running, and he's going to keep coming after you. And uh, that's the thing about God. He's pretty persistent. So... Um, Every Christian, at some point, way later, after they've had this moment where they've become a Christian, they look back at it, and they were convinced that they were seeking and pursuing God, but what they actually find is God was pursuing them the whole time. I want to read to you this hymn. It's an old hymn. You know it's old because it starts with tis. It says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee. Hadst thou not chosen me, my heart owns none before thee. 
for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Martin Luther calls Jesus the hound of heaven who comes and chases us down. And I'd go even further and say that he continues to chase you until you're exhausted. And you fall to the dusty earth and he comes and he picks you up. And he begins to carry you out into freedom, into the world you long for. And along the way, he, he whispers in your ear, I love you. You are mine. And I will never, ever, ever let you go. And when you see that, you realize that your moral efforts are nothing compared to the grace that God is ready to offer you. This is the third point. This is God's challenge to religion. And what I mean by that is your moral efforts. You have to see this about Cornelius. He was a great man. Successful, loved. He got, got this big group of people to come and listen to what this, this man named Peter was going to come and say. He was successful, loved, moral, and he wasn't good enough. He needed grace. And if Cornelius needs grace, we all do. I want to read to you another quote. This one's from C.S. Lewis. It's in his book called The Great Divorce. And in the story, there's, there's two people who knew each other on the earth, and now that, well, they've passed away, and one has taken, uh, and this is not what C.S. Lewis believes, it's just a, a parable. He, he says, there's a man in hell who's taken a bus ride up to heaven on the outskirts of heaven. And he's a ghostly figure, and he's meeting with this man who's in heaven who was a murderer, and here's how it goes. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, a bloody murderer while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. Personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by right. And if I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. And I'm only a poor man, but I have my rights, same as you, you see. The other man said, oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Uh, what do you keep arguing for? I don't want my right. I want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and, I, and you can tell them I said so. And then this ghostly figure goes on and says, I'd rather be damned then go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see, not to go sniveling along on charity, tied to your apron strings, I'll go home. I didn't come to be treated like a dog, I'll go home, that's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. In Christianity, you don't get your rights. He takes your rights. 
He takes what belongs to you. He takes what you deserve, and he gives you everything that he deserves. He gives you all of his rights. He gives you the bleeding charity. And when you realize that, then you want to worship him. So our next point, God arouses our worship. God is very passionate about your worship. And his means to draw you into worshiping him is his grace. When I talk to people, they get a little bit uncomfortable about this idea that God wants your worship. Sounds like he's a megalomaniac. Sounds like he's a narcissist. I mean, a narcissist wants your worship. And, and that's the problem for the narcissist is they want something that belongs only to God. And that's a little bit in all of us. There's the comedy sitcom The Office. And in it, there's a character named Michael Scott. And he was asked, would you rather people love you or fear you? And he said, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And there's a little bit of that in all of us. We all want to be praised. I mean, there's, there's a hardwiring, and, and it's because ultimately what you long for is the praise and approval, even like what is called the glory, where you enter into it and you get, in a way, like God's approval. and I dare I even say praise from God to you. But it's all because of the cloaking of Christ. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. You long for that. It's deep in you. And... The kindness of God shows you his glory, and it draws you away from that. It's like in the Trinity, you have the Father, Son, and Spirit, and none of them are selfishly wanting worship, but they're receiving it from the others. Like they're all glorying in each other, and each is praising the other, and we long to be swept up into that. Now, this is a little confusing because, well, are we supposed to want the approval of God, yes. It's when we want to take his place that becomes a problem. And, and so Peter has this test before him. He walks into the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius drops to his knees and begins to worship Peter. It's, it's just deep in us. Everybody would want that. But because Peter has seen the magnificence of God, it disturbs him greatly. And he says, get up. Get up, what are you doing? I'm just a man, just like you. What Peter has seen is the glory of the only Son of God who has come to rescue us, and he is out of this world, blown away by him, and it, dis it, it disturbs him to think anybody would worship anyone but him. So we all want that in some degree, and we need to be rescued from that. And we all want to worship something. And whatever it is that you love the most in your life, that's what you worship. If there is something in your life that you love more than God, that has taken the throne of your life now. And it is what you're worshiping. You can imagine the prostitutes in Korea that the missionaries ministering to, you know, they want a rescuer. They want a, a pretty woman's story. They want a man to come in a fancy car with a whole lot of cash and rescue them from this lifestyle. 
And the missionary tells them not of a rich man, but a poor man who doesn't ride a fancy car, but he rides a cross. And he pursues them even as they run. And he rescues them and he saves them and he gives his life for them. And then he says, marry me, like give me all of you and you can have all of me. And he invites us all on this trip upon the boat of the cross to sail across the trackless sea to the celestial shores where we long to be forever with him. That is what's offered. He's the only one who will look at his enemies and die for them. I mean, the Bible calls us enemies of God. He's the only one who will look at his enemies and die for them and endure hell for them. And he's the only one who has the power to raise himself up from the dead, and the Father raises him. No one else is worthy of your worship but him. And we all, uh, you know, we all act like prostitutes a bit. We're not selling our body, but we're selling our soul to the thing that we love most. And you, you think about um, mothers. What's the great test for a mother? Well, you have these beautiful children. And it would be so easy to elevate them above God in your life. And to love them more than you love God. And even when I say that, something feels wrong to you, right? Because you love them so much. But here's what happens to them if you do that. You start going to them to get from them what only God can give you. And there's a deep part of you that whatever you love most, you want to see it sacrificed for you. And what you will then begin to do as a mother who loves your children more than God is you'll begin to crush your kids because you're going to want to send them to the cross. And I know you would say, I would never do that. But you will because you need, there's something in you that needs what you love most to show I will die for you. And you'll begin to crush them with no intentions of doing it because you're overloving them. You're loving them in a way that they're not ready to receive that kind of love. They're not meant for it and they're going to want to run away from you because you love them too much. And it's not that you love them too much, really. It's that you love them more than you love God. And, but if you will love God more than them, then you are going to have God who is love in you. And then you'll actually be able to love them more by making God your ultimate love, your ultimate prize. Or you can worship your career. When I first um, got into ministry, everyone was so kind to me. Like, I, had, I didn't know what I was doing. And um, you could maybe argue I still don't. But I got so much praises, and it was intoxicating. It's like, you're doing such a good job, David. And it's because I, I had really no responsibility. And they just wanted to see me going to ministry and you know, in seminary. But then as I started getting more responsibilities, the church where I used to be, the critiques started coming in. So you think about what you do. You're building your identity on your career. Like, so, okay, I take, oh, I want to be a pastor. So I find who am I? I look within. I'm a pastor. And then I hold out this identity out to the people, and then they start critiquing me. And it's like a knife to my heart every time. Because I've started worshiping ministry. I've started worshiping my career. So anything that you take that you begin worshiping, you start to build your identity around that thing. You become like that thing. You hold that out to the world. And if it disapproves, it's crushing. 
if you give your life, like if you make your child the ultimate person you're worshiping and then you hold your heart out to your child and your child says something mean, it's going to crush you. It's like, well, I, I love you. Why are you saying this? Because you love me too much and it's suffocating me. Go to God. Go love him more than me and then you'll love me more. Well, your child doesn't know to say that, but if your child was a pastor, maybe. So what will make us finally make the move of worshiping God as the one who we ought to be worshiping? And the answer is in our story. It's, it's weird. It's the words that Peter speaks to Cornelius, his family, and his friends that cause them all to start worshiping God. Words. Words about Christ. These, these are the most powerful force in all of the cosmos is the words about Christ. And here's what the words are. First, Peter shows how the Son of God left the heavens. And he came down into a world that was unclean. He was tested. And he lived perfectly. And if he would have said, give me my rights, the Father would have immediately taken him up sat him on the throne next to him and said, well done, son, with you I am so well pleased. And the Trinitarian relationship of dance and love amongst would continue on for all of eternity. And we would be lost. But the second part of the words is, instead of him saying to his father, give me my rights, he says, give me their rights. Give me what they deserve. And he, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, the fire of heaven comes down upon him and swallows him up. What is that? Well, in a way, it's like Pentecost. What What happened at Pentecost? The fire of God came down, only instead of it consuming everyone around It was the power of God, the love of God, the passion of God that got put into us. And now our hearts are burning within us with the fire of God that has come down and not consumed us. Now, the question we have to ask is, why did the fire not consume them at Pentecost? Why is the fire of the Holy Spirit not consuming them here in our story? And why are we not being consumed? And the answer is found in the story about Jesus where he's hanging out with his disciples And this group of people start getting, I don't know, maybe a bit annoying. And the disciples, Jesus' disciples said to him, you should rain fire down on them from the heavens. Because they understand, they're starting to recognize who he is and the kind of power he has. And he rebukes them. And he said, there is a baptism with fire. But it's for me, not for them. And what he means by this is on the cross, the fire of God's judgment is unleashed upon Christ because he's holding on to all of our sins. And that is the baptism of fire that he is being baptized in. A lot of people will say that in the Old Testament, you have an angry God. And in the New Testament, you have a loving God. Old Testament judgment, New Testament forgiveness. No, you have a much greater pouring out of the judgment of God in the New Testament. It's just all directed right to Christ on the cross. He receives the judgment. We receive grace. You begin to see that 
you want to worship him. And it doesn't end there. The third thing is death and hell have a claim on us. But what he does is he goes down into death. He goes down into the hellish abyss. And there he breaks death's claim on you. And he rises up from the grave and he brings you with him and he carries you out into freedom. And then he says, follow me. And that is when you look upon your Savior and you look at him and you will gladly follow him wherever he calls. And you'll gladly worship him as your Lord. And then guess what you do? You're following him and you mess up. You start doing something you shouldn't do and he chases you back and he says, come on. Forgive you, let's go. We've got some great work to do. And you follow him and you mess up again and he comes and gets you, chases you down, brings you back to him all over again. This is the only one who is worthy of our worship. So today, do not claim your rights. Claim his. He's ready to offer them. Claim the bloody charity. Let's pray. Father, in your love, you have sent your son. And we want that to be real to us. We want to believe with all of our heart that this is true. But we have doubts, and so we pray that you would help us through those doubts. And you would guide us with knowing how to wrestle through them. And you would give us the peace and the joy that comes with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.